You know, it was a little over 2,000 years ago that, that um, human history was impacted by the coming of the one that would be called Jesus. God is salvation. God's sal- God salvation. The one whose birth we're celebrating today and really this week. 700 years around prior to that date of his birth, which we don't know the specific date. It's been celebrated on this date uh, for now generations. But what we do know is that it was a marking point that changed radically history. About 700 or so years before the coming and the birth of Jesus, one of, if not the greatest of the Jewish prophets, Isaiah, whose prophecies are so delicately tied to the birth of Messiah, and not just to the birth of Messiah, but to a particular perspective on Messiah, specifically as it relates to the suffering Messiah. But as as Isaiah prophesied of the one who would be not only the deliverer of Israel, but also of the world, he made this statement that scholars have pondered for generations. I'll put it up there, it's in Isaiah 9, 6. It's often quoted during Christmas time. For a child is born to us, the son is given to us. The government will rest upon his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. These superlatives, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and then juxtapositionally, the Prince of Peace, which is compelling in and of itself in a world filled with non-peace and utter unrestlessness and continual churning of warfare and terrorism and craziness. The Prince of Peace comes not with the sword but to give his life away. Um, These words were used to describe the historic moment, right? That would cause an impact worthy of such titles. So the birth of Jesus is these titles are associated with it. And the titles were, they really did accurately portray how significant his life would be. They, they weren't really hyperbole. So you say, oh, those titles, you know, the Everlasting Father, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Mighty God. So, but in his, in his case, they, they were actually real, real descriptions of who he was. Now, I say that because you and I, I think you know this. I, I certainly do. Anybody who pays attention to current events knows this. We live in an age filled with hyperbole. We do. With heady, grandiose self-promotion, right? When fame is so often defined, come on now, by, by the amount of followers one can claim, in an age dominated by selfies <laughs> and dominated by outrageous videos where people show us a whole lot more of their lives than we should ever really want to see. (laughs) When the term great is used with such frequency that it means quite less. Because I think we understand that when everything is great, nothing is. And yet when we examine just how Jesus was born, the circumstances that he was born into, what we find is something actually that is very different than what we would have expected from such a majestically consequential life. When we look at his beginning, it's impossible to admit by any objective measure how humble, how simple, how vulnerable, how dependent it all was, he was. And if you open up your handout, 
You can read the scriptures that we've put into the handout. And you'll see a passage there in Luke 2, which is a great passage to read, especially at Christmas time. But I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to look at it, and I'd like to te- teach us a little something about it. It says, at the time the Roman Emperor Augustus, this is how Luke's account of the birth of Christ opens up. It says, the time of the Roman Emperor Augustus, he decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. And this was the first census. Uh, the census was taken for the purpose of registering people so that they could pay their taxes. So the purpose of the census was not just to find out who lived where and how many people lived where in the Roman Empire. It was done so that they could then track people and and tax them. And when you read the New Testament, you'll find that taxation is a big issue. It's always been. (laughs) And it was really a big issue in Jesus' day. In fact, when you read the Gospels, you'll see it constantly coming up because people deeply resented the fact that not only did they have to pay taxes, but they had to pay taxes to a a foreign overlord. It's one thing to have to pay taxes to our own government that we may feel may not be using those resources properly. It's another thing to have to pay it to a foreign government who rules over us and reminds us every time we pay it that we do not have true freedom as a people. And in Jesus' day, taxation was real. The, day of Mary, the days of Mary and Joseph, as Augustus had expanded the Roman Empire beyond anything anyone could have imagined. And many have tried to recreate this to no avail The Roman Empire had achieved what was known as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, but the peace of Rome had come at the edge of a sword. They were a dominant military force, and they had projected their power into regions that are now in turmoil in the rest of the world. I say that because when Rome decided on a whim that they needed people to have a census taken to pay their taxes, everything is moved. And watch how God intertwines with what seems to be the whim of an emperor and the need of a group of leaders in Rome to raise taxes to fund the empire and to pay their bills. That how God works within the churning of the nations to bring about his will and purpose at a a particular time. Because the Bible says in Galatians that in the fullness of time, a son has come and was born and given. So when the time was perfect, And so from Rome's perspective, and if you were to look at this as just a common historian or anyone else looking at it from a large perspective, everyone would have thought that where where things were really at was in Rome. And everyone would have missed the really big event because the real event was just a little minor thread that no one would have ever seen nor noticed. Because when God comes into this world, he doesn't do it in a way that men do things. He does it very differently. And when he came in, he came in under the radar. You look at the passage, it says, and then Luke's giving us details. He says this was the first census taken when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. These, These names would have meant something to other people, all returned, but they're designed to remind us this was a historical moment in time in a very geographically, historically accurate place right? They all returned to their own ancestral towns to register the the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. Now, we read this. I I want us to understand that 
this is a significant, and this is a significant side note, because one of the, one of the Bible's assertions is that even though G, Joseph, who, by the way, is a magnificently beautiful man who is willing to play second, or we might even say third fiddle, because Mary is clearly the center along with Jesus, and, and Joseph is along with them. But Joseph, even though he is not Jesus' natural biological father for the seed that produced Jesus and is talked about even in this book, was not a product of man, but a product of the Holy Spirit's overshadowing, as incredible as that may seem. But Joseph was the legal earthly father, and he, Joseph, was a direct descendant of David, the greatest of all of Israel's kings, which means that Jesus would be considered a legal descendant of the kingly line, even though Joseph was not his biological father. And therefore, he could also, and this will matter more to some than others, but it just reminds us of how amazingly complex the Bible prophecies are, because that would allow Jesus to fulfill the messianic prophecy as the son of David. One of the things we know is that he traveled from the village of Nazareth. I'm gonna, I asked them if they could put a little map up. Again, just because it helps us, I think, to just get an idea of where we're talking about. Do you see where Galilee is? Galilee and Nazareth is in the Galilee. It's in the, the, it's in the north. Jesus was, was from the north. He'll be raised there in the northern place. That was more the hill country. The Judea south was considered the more sophisticated region, although Bethlehem wasn't necessarily that it was still a region where the more powerful intellectual intelligentsia was because Jerusalem was located in the south. They actually looked down a lot of times on people in the north. It's amazing how that works. It can work in all directions. <laughs> but the people in the north were more hill people. They were less educated. That's where Jesus grows up, in Nazareth. But they lived in Nazareth. Joseph was a carpenter. But the... the the edict of Augustus Caesar compels him then to have to move. Mary's pregnant, doesn't matter. There's some controversy around the pregnancy. Joseph's been doing all he can. He knows the child isn't his. He actually doesn't believe Mary. It isn't until there is an appearance, the Bible says, of an, of an angel, something that appears to him and essentially says to him, listen, what she's telling you is true. You need to treat her as if she's your own wife, and take her and, and believe that God is doing something in her as we speak. I mean, it's this amazing thing. You can read the interaction. My point is that Mary is fully near term. She's on her, she's getting really close. It doesn't matter. She's got to move. She goes. Watch what happens here. It says that as she came, while they were there, um, she was obviously pregnant in verse 5. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child. He was a son, that's Jesus. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth. It was hardly the robe of someone who was very impressive. And they laid him in a manger because there was no lodging that was available for them. The older version says there was no room in the inn. A curious irony indeed, don't you think? Because the creator could not find a room. Sometimes life isn't fair. And then, as we can see here, Luke's, he's anchoring this in historical data because he wants us to understand this is not just something he's making up. But look at the entry of Jesus. Besides the detailed manner in which Luke does, does this, you know, what does it stands out? What stands out is that the one who would impact humani humanity so consequentially 
so wonderfully, would enter so softly, so uh, modestly, so ordinary, so undignified, so unnoticed, so overlooked. The third stanza of Philip Brooks's carol hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, where it says, how silently, how silently. And Brooks wrote that looking out over the village of Bethlehem. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. See, he came without any royal announcements. The, we would have expected something. There was barely anything. With the, he came without security. He came without the best care possible, without the luxuries that are so often afforded to people now commonly today. I mean, we expect to have safety when we're having a child born. In the ancient world, by the way, childbearing was both far more essential and far more risky than it is today. That's why when you read the New Testament, and certainly true in the Older Testament as well, that childbearing is so significant because people's livelihoods depended on their children and their ability to survive frequently, certainly in the old age when there were no security systems. And the more hands you had, the more you were able to work, work the land. That's still true in many, much of the third world countries today. It was true then, and one of the problems they had was that when women would have this they come to term, and you'll see it intertwined in the New Testament letters, there was a legitimate fear. My wife and I were talking about this just a few days ago, where when you would have a child, oftentimes, today, we would, a complication arises. We have medical technology available to us that we can, we can do a C-section. Someone can be saved. There were times in those, if that happened then, that was it. Moms died all, all the time. And it was understood that that was the risk. So when Jesus comes in this world, Mary, you know, Mary doesn't know. She, she took her risk. And when the Lord comes into this world without the best care possible, he comes as a baby. He comes as a child. He comes as one of us. Totally. He comes vulnerable. He comes dependent. The Son of God enters in. No one notices. Rome, Rome does, what's nothing? Nothing to no one. He's so dependent, so vulnerable. Look how God does this. He's literally t attached to his mother for survival. For a brief moment, everything depends. How vulnerable is God? And the, then the exposed baby relies on the care of his mom. He comes to, and then when he gets his first bed, and I know we sentimentalize it and romanticize it, and I'm okay with that. But honestly, the animal's trough wasn't a great place to put a baby. It was okay. I mean, this is stables aren't that sanitized. And they don't smell that good. They got stuff everywhere. And they're damp and they're dark and they're cold. And the animals drink out of a trough. And the Son of God was placed in one of those to start off. What? What? Exactly. Come on. Can you do What does that tell us, at least in part? He, can, he comes without any particular advantage of social status. He's not having an impressive pedigree. But what does it remind us of? And just, just for a moment, just a couple of things it reminds us of, and this is just real quick asides. One of the things it can remind us of is that, that God, and we see this through Jesus, he's eminently approachable. We don't need to feel intimidated by the greatness of God. 
his holiness. I understand there's a healthy fear. But in the Older Testament, people who came near to God, they were always afraid. And justifiably so. Because when God showed up, people tended sometimes just to die because it was so powerful. Even those closest to him were a little afraid. And one of the things, one of the things Jesus taught us is that the heart of God doesn't really want us to be afraid. Some of us may have been taught that God's always angry at us if we don't do certain things. It's true we can break his heart. It's true we need to repent. It's true that there are some things we need to turn from. But his heart is for us. And he doesn't want us to be afraid of him. That's what Jesus reminds us of, at least in part. His coming also tells us that he is utterly safe. Who can be afraid of a baby? Come on. Can't be. And also that God is astonishingly empathetic. He understands the things... He understands us. He understands because he, he is one of us, yet apart. He's able to be compassionate on us when we're struggling with things because he entered into our reality. Now, I suppose he had the right to do that anyway because he was our creator, but the fact is when he became like unto us, he understands us at a, at a level that none of us can say, well, God doesn't understand me. Yes, he does. He understands our frame. He understands our contradictions. He understands our weaknesses. And he understands our struggles. And not a one of us here that doesn't struggle with something. I don't care who the most righteous of us is. Whoever you are, would you stand up and I would like to see you, who you are. <laughs> the act alone would betray that what you were doing wasn't true. And the fact of the matter is that none of us are good enough. And none of us know, really knows what God's trying to do in any of our hearts. But what we do know is this. I do know this. I know this is true. That all of us struggle with something. And the more we love the Lord and the more sincere we are with wanting to try to do things the way he wants us to do, the more, at times, acute that struggle may be because for the first time we may actually be trying to deal with things that we would have never dealt with before. This happens in families. This happens in the heart of a man. It happens in the heart of a woman. The more we dive deeply into the things of the Lord, not only do we get closer to his love for us, but we also get challenged in ways we wouldn't have gotten challenged before. Not because God wants to catch us doing anything wrong, but because he wants to grow us into places we could have never gone without it. His breaking is not to humiliate us. His breaking is because he loves us. The suffering even then can be distilled to the lens of his love. Even that God can bring good from the worst. It's what he does. It's why we say that he is the redeemer, the savior, the one who was born to set us free. He's the one who brings redemption. He brings that freedom. He brings renewal. He brings all kinds of beautiful things. And the one thing he brings to us, we know for sure, is that he starts the conversation in our lives. He's the initiative taker. If Christmas teaches us anything, part of what it teaches us is that God makes the first step. What we couldn't do, get to him, he does for us, comes to us. And that's what we're encouraged to remember. Now, one of the things the, the team did, and I was thinking about this because um, they created this video uh, piece. It was actually created digitally by our Com Arts director, who's a very talented man named Rick Navarte. And when he designed this little piece, he designed it to sort of look at the life of Jesus and look at it from its arc from his birth into its arc. 
and sort of walk with him. And you'll see it. He, he, he takes these moments in the life of Jesus. Some of you will notice them when you see what we're about to look at. And so what we've done is we've taken his digital piece, just trying to celebrate the uniqueness of Jesus. And I'm just going to take a little brief interval here. And we're going to have a live song that accompanies the piece that really is celebrating in its own unique, creative, artistic way through imagery the beauty of the one who was born and where, where his life would take him. So we're going to share that together right now, and then I'll come right back. A teenage girl and a son to be a simple trip far as they could see The sky was clear and the hour serene But did they know what the night would bring? Lonely hearts strung across the land They've been waiting long for a healing end My heart was there and I felt the chill Love came down and the earth stood still Love came down and the earth stood still That would change their lives The angels trembled And the demons did too For they knew very well What pure grace would do
So I really like the way that that captured something of the one who was born, because he was born to not only give us his beautiful words, which people who don't even believe in him respect, but he also gave us things that modeled how to love people, how God's heart is moved. He healed. He opened the eyes of the blind. He, he ultimately gave his life away. So the one who was born, and that's one of the things we do in our Christmas Eve services, we try to mark the fact that he was born to give himself for us. It's very important to remember that. We're celebrating not only the one who gives us life and hope, but also the one who gave everything. And a lot of times, we, we sometimes don't always appreciate maybe the extent of, of God's love and what this birth meant. John, in his gospel, would write this in his opening overture, if you will. And I asked him if they could just put this up real quick. In John 1, he said, he came to this very world that he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people even, and, and they even rejected him. But that's true for the world, for all of us. But to all who believe, to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right, he gave the privilege, he gave the access to become the children of God. And this is an incredible promise that we've been given. It's a promise, by the way, notice it, that is contingent on our willingness to believe and accept it. And in a way, that's something we're invited to do once, each one of us needs to decide, do I accept Jesus as my Savior? Perhaps somebody will say, I choose to do that even today, for the first time, by choice. But understand this, that when it comes to following Jesus, it's not just a one-time moment. It's an ongoing, daily thing. We get to choose, I like to think of it as a daily and weekly thing, weekly to remind myself who he is. I accept him to as many as received him, gave he the power to become his the children of God, the sons and daughters of God, to as many who believe and accept him, what will our answer be? And how do we align our life with that acceptance? That's critical on a daily basis. We get to decide that. And so, you know, when we come to this moment, and I wanted us to just be thinking about it, and this is all I want to leave with us, really. And, and this is a more of a practical piece, but I want to, I want to do this because otherwise it was a, an interesting piece but then how do we then take this with us out these doors and apply it into this week? Because this week's important. And I want to make the case, submit it to you, that how we choose to leave and enter in will either move us forward with the Lord or move us perhaps a little backwards. But it probably won't leave us the same. And if we're able to move forward through Christmas, what will happen is it increases the likelihood that we're going to move forward into the new year. Those things both matter. So let me just suggest a couple of things about how I'm hoping we might consider entering into this coming week. One of the things is this, and I just asked them to put it up under a bit of a heading, but it's, it's, I would like us to think about pondering his coming a little bit more even than what we've just done. And I have, you'll notice in there this whole idea of internal reflection, push inward. This simple, it might be as simple as rereading Luke 1 and 2. It might be as simple as taking some time to be intentional about looking at Matthew's account. It might be as intentional as looking at John's opening chapters. The point of the matter is when we can spend some time with the Christmas story over the next five days or so, and, you know, maybe we do this in our own personal devotional life, right? That's the time we might take either in the morning or some cases some people do it at night to just create space to just 
read his word, read a little devotional that's a writing with maybe a little thought behind it, or, you know, just really talk to someone about Jesus' coming, maybe in our small groups, some of us may be having. Some of us may want to mark, as I have obviously liked to do, if we're around and we're not away, make Christmas Eve a time for marking something, that we're actually marking this moment to really honor the coming of Jesus in a very intentional, thoughtful way. We are pondering what it means. Like I say, part of what we do is we talk about him. In fact, I think we're actually going to live stream that service as well. Um, and so the, the idea is that we want to be able to create access to get our heart ready to not just say, oh, I went to church, but I want to, I want to sit with this for a few days so that when Christmas comes, I can celebrate his coming intentionally and looking at my own heart. Lord, oh, here's the thing. Lord, what are some things that you want to come to me in? Is there some mess? Is there some struggle? Is there something that has defeated me? Is there an element of loneliness, loss? I don't know. Can we invite him in? And that really does perfectly segue into the second piece, which is this. Come to him vulnerably. That is, take an action step. Move towards him. So if the first one is push in, that means I go in, I think. I think. I really think. Think about who I am, about where I'm at. What am I, what's going on in my life right now? What is God trying to say to me? What does his coming mean for me? What hope do I need to hold on to? What fear do I need to let go of? What area of my life is not experiencing peace? What would it mean to welcome in the Prince of Peace into this place? What about actually saying it, writing it down? What about taking a moment to write a, do a journal for five days and jot some thoughts down each day, perhaps, or at least on one of those days, and think, Lord, where are areas that I do not have your peace, where I need the Prince of Peace to be born in me? Are there some fears that are gripping me, that are trying to dominate me, scare me, intimidate me, define me? What does it mean to yield those fears to you? Are there some areas in my life where I'm having a hard time trusting you? What does it mean to be vulnerable? What does it mean when we say God's okay even with our stubborn contradictions? Someone said to me, well, and I felt this feeling. There have been some areas in my life where I said, Lord, I want to surrender this to you, but I'm not sure all of me does. What do I do about that? Because I don't know, I don't know if I have the right to come to you that way. And what I'm reminded of is that even coming to him with our contradiction is still coming. And he, how much faith did he say it would take to move some mountains in our lives? the faith of a mustard seed, so small. The very act of even sharing your heart with him, even in doubt and in stubbornness, is an act of faith. Don't pull out of that. You know what we need to ask him? Lord, give me the will. Help me to want your will. Because a part of me is fighting that. That's a good thing. So secondly is move towards him. The last thing I'll say about it, and really is, just you can see the progression here. Push in, move towards, and then push out. What are we talking about? What we're talking about is thinking about in these next few days how we can be a little bit more of a representative of Jesus. 
So that might mean that we choose in our certain gatherings to say, you know, can we at least, would it be okay we could pray, just thank God for the birth of Jesus? Maybe in some of our gatherings, even with people who don't know him, we think about a way to tactfully, but nonetheless, and with humility, but nonetheless almost insist in the best sense of the word, upon bringing up the reason for Christmas. It may mean speaking up in some modest way on our job this week. It may be as simple as, and I know this might sound silly to some people, saying Merry Christmas and kind of going out of our way to say it, not obnoxiously, just because we want to link the two together. And I'm saying is there might be way they might be bringing somebody to Christmas Eve sir, candlelight who maybe we've been thinking about and we've never we haven't we thought maybe I should bring them invite them to something maybe it's taking a step to say you know hey my church has this thing da 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 we know people have come to know the Lord through that service it's interesting and they would go to it because they wouldn't go to any other else but they'll go to that one or do an Easter program sometimes I think I get it it's scary coming into a church if you've never been in one or you've had a really bad experience in one. But people trust people who they believe in. And most people come to know Jesus because a friend or a family member created a pathway to talk about him. And someone brought them along. So as we finish up here, I, want to, I just think in the song that we're closing with, it, it has this idea, and you'll see it there in the, in the handout as well, because it's, it really has this idea of making space for him. It carries with it this, this sense of preparing him room. The words aren't there, but you'll hear the words. They're great. They're very good. <laughs> they, have, they have meaning, value. Uh, but the idea of prepare him room, that's the thought we want to leave with, okay? So preparing him room in my own heart, inviting him into those disruptive places, those places where I'm fighting myself, some of us are fighting even relationally. Bring the, peace, bring the peacemaker in. He still quells storms. He's the miracle worker. Nothing he can't do, arm not too short. Some, some of us, it may mean moving towards him intentionally, writing something, doing something, praying something, do, acting on that inside, and then, or may talk about it, and then push it out, push it out. Prepare room for the one. Come as a child, prepare him room. That's what we'll close with. So what we're going to do, we'll have our time of giving. I'm going to pray. And then they're going to close with this song. And then we sit with it fully. Don't run past the moment. It's not just a nice ending. Receive it. And maybe along the way as we're hearing it, say, Lord, are there things that you're trying to prepare in me this week? I want to be open to that, just like Mary was open. Have, the, have your way, God, with me. I, 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 I welcome you to do a work in me. Birth new things. Birth new things. All right, Lord, I thank you for our time. I thank you for this privilege of being able to talk about you on this week leading into Christmas. This Christmas week is special. Many people's hearts are turned to you. I know it's not always great for everyone. I know we live in a crazy world, but the truth is you are the Prince of Peace. And when you really are truly embraced, that's what happens. Peace comes, or at least the absence of anger and malice. It's sometimes hard to understand how it all works together. But I know this. You want us to open up our hearts 
and not fight you. Even when we're fighting ourselves, it's okay. Trust you. We need to trust you, not be afraid of you. Draw close to you. Get better. So I pray that this last song would, would emphasize that in all of us. Whatever it is uniquely we're walking through, whatever fears we may have that we're struggling with, let's just think about what it means to open up our heart to you in this closing minutes after our time of giving. This is what I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.